This month we have two very special podcasts to celebrate Pride, where we will be talking about gay conversion therapy, active steps the government could take to support the LGBTQ community, and of course the difficulties among patients and staff that have arose during the pandemic. On part one of our Pride podcast we have Sarah Sansfeld. Sarah is a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist working in Manchester. She specialises in working with adolescents and is a member of the Royal College's Rainbow Special Interest Group. We'll also have Leslie Fraser who works on the same team as Sarah. Leslie is a senior mental health practitioner and a cognitive behavioural therapist. Thank you both for joining me today. Uh, Sarah, we're going to start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about your day-to-day work and your day-to-day life, I suppose? Yeah, hi. Uh, My name is Sarah Stansfeld. I'm a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist and I work with older adolescents, so teenagers aged 16 and 17. And I work in a community team with lots of lovely colleagues, including Leslie, who's here with me today. And my day to day work is meeting with young people, um, the kind of young people who come to our service, the kind of the kind of situations they might be in or problems that they're they're coming with are people with depression um, with different types of anxiety problems things like social anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder Um, we see quite a lot of young people who are presenting in crisis with their mental health so they might have thoughts of of harming themselves or, or even thoughts of wanting to die quite a lot of our work is about supporting people through crisis times we also kind of take a developmental approach to assessing people so thinking about whether there might be a difference in their neurodevelopment like autism spectrum condition or or, um, ADHD attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and then because we're seeing kind of older teenagers we do also fairly often see people who are in the first stages of mental illnesses like psychosis or, or bipolar disorder so those are the kind of the kind of things that I might be talking to people about um, day to day. I'll be seeing um, young people for assessments to get a detailed look at what's going on and, and, and help to get an understanding of that. And um, and I also think about treatment and, and one of the treatments I offer is is medication alongside the, the therapies that other members of the team like Leslie's able to offer. So I might think about is the medication right to be started and then also to meet young people for follow ups to, to check they're on the right medication, if it's helpful and, it, and to check if they're having any side effects. So as well as meeting with young people, um, we also work together as a team. So there's quite a lot of case discussions um, and thinking about treatment plans and how to keep people safe. Um, so quite a lot of talking together with team members. Um, We also spend time liaising with other professionals like colleges and like um, social services, for instance. Um, And then in addition to that, there's quite a lot of paperwork and computer work to get done. And Leslie, could you tell us a little bit about your day to day and how it might differ from Sarah's? Um, yeah, so my name is Leslie and I'm based in the same team as Sarah. Um, I'm a cognitive behaviour therapist and senior mental health practitioner. So um, a lot of my work is doing the initial assessment. Sometimes we, we do duty, as Sarah says, when somebody may have presented from A&E or when they're in a crisis. Um, a major part of my work is ongoing psychological therapy um, with young people. 
but as Sarah says, also liaising with different services that will um, support the young person, so potentially the college that they're going to, because we, we just work with 16 and 17 year olds, the college or school, sixth form, etc. Career services potentially to try and get young people involved in those, or other more other voluntary services as well that may that may be more suitable um, for them to access some support there as well. We work as a multidisciplinary team, so discussing cases together really. We, we from dis- different disciplines. We have social workers, counsellors, nurses, psychiatrists within our team, also um, senior psychologists, and obviously we've got management team as well. And Leslie, if there was a young person listening and they they heard about therapy but they didn't really know what that involved what would what would your therapy because that's yep that's a big part of your yeah so kind of like um their engagement in therapy we talk to young people about um, what therapy involves about it's not just about kind of turning up for uh therapy sessions but also their um their collaboration within that then be almost like becoming their own therapist really and really understanding what what is maintaining the problem so about behaviors and thought processes etc that are, are keeping you know the difficulties going really and, and what changes to make so therefore um kind of you know through therapy looking at okay what small changes can they make in between sessions um to kind of start to alleviate those problems and challenge some kind of maybe negative thinking processes so about really being on board with that and and what engagement in therapy actually means so we we really do a lot of work you know within that kind of getting a young person ready for that um so even if it's a case of because we we've got a kind of quite this small window of, um for 16 you know 16 17 year olds about having a a positive experience within our team with a view to maybe returning to therapy at a later date if that if that's more appropriate maybe when they're um in adult services but them knowing really what you know what therapy would would be about and it's something that they would be involved in as well as we slowly emerge out of the pandemic what do you think the impact of covid has been like on your patients mm, um it's been it's it's been really tricky um because i i uh, particularly work with lots of young people who might suffer with anxiety disorders or present with symptoms of anxiety disorders for instance sarah touched on social anxiety um earlier on so the covid and the lockdown has almost been a, like um an enforced avoidance of social situations which for for months i suppose is is kind of um, left those young people in what they would kind of call their comfort zones to to start off with, but actually in the long run has actually really impacted negatively. So now that we're kind of starting to kind of come out of it, we've been starting for a little while, or you know, as they were returning to college, that was really really difficult because that that enforced kind of isolation really impacted upon that a lot. And you know, I'm sure obviously. You know the impact of, of uh, the lockdown and the pandemic on a young person that might be suffering with symptoms of OCD um, or generalised anxiety disorder. And you know this kind of uncertainty. We live in an uncertain world anyway, but this um, kind of huge kind of uncertainty that we we were left with over a year has really impacted upon that. And um, we're seeing a lot more young people coming through with those difficulties. Yeah, and I think you made some really good points there. And um, 
I suppose for me, some of the young people who've been most affected by the pandemic are those who live with very difficult home situations. And and we know, um, you know, the people who have unhealthy relationships at home, who, who perhaps are in abusive situations at home, we know that that has a huge impact on people's mental health. There's, there's a huge amount of evidence for that. And what's happened during the pandemic is all of those everyday escapes that have helped people cope with that have been taken away and, and all at once. So those things that people would might do to cope, like spending time staying with friends or relatives, like having time with their friends, like going into face-to-face -face schooling, um, you know, having other family members be able to go out to their, to their jobs. And when all of those things are taken away, um, that can, can make things very, very difficult. And, and that's certainly something that I've seen with some of the young people we've been working with. And how does being part of the LGBT community influence the way you both connect with patients and service users? We were just talking about this. Really. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I suppose um, for me, it's, there is like an increased understanding of, of potential stigma, discrimination that can be faced, and and and, and especially the young people that we're working with are not necessarily out or out everywhere. Um, and about that kind of being stilted in our language and the the language that we use and and. And that's hard in itself and about where they feel safe to be out, where they, they don't feel safe to be out. So an increased understanding about that. But however, it, it's quite dangerous, I suppose, to fall into that trap to kind of think that, well, I, I'm not the um, the expert on, on what that is. And I don't necessarily know their experience. We all, you know, we all have our empathic practitioners that work within our teams. Um, and so it's about really trying to really understand that you know from the young person's point of view yeah and we're not, not making or, assumptions yeah. kind of just because you think you know already yeah I mean I think for me I was thinking about this question I think it, it has given me a bit of an insight into the the shame that people can carry with them and when you're growing up and I think people internalize that and carry that with them and that has a huge impact on your self-esteem and your sense of self-worth, which is really a, a key building block in having good mental health. So I think that's something that I've learned from being part of the LGBT community that, that I do carry into my practice. Um, the patients that you see might not necessarily be out and be openly LGBTQ, they might not openly be gay, might not openly be trans. How do you make sure that you create a a space where they can be out I suppose? Um, as part of our assessment process when a young person comes into our service um, part of our um, taking details for demographics it's just all part of that so we ask a young person how they might identify um, their gender, their sexual orientation, we ask them about pronouns, we potentially introduce ourselves with our own pronouns um so that it's just enabling really and it's just part of that process and obviously we you know we talk to young because they don't they don't have to say um we meet quite a lot of young people who who might kind of um say that you know they're not sure and they prefer not to say and that's absolutely fine too um but we we do it as just part of that initial mm. process i think that's right i think being able to just ask in a non-judgmental way sometimes is enough 
The, the other thing I would say is we're really lucky to work in this team, which has had a lot of time to think about the needs of our age group of, of, of 16 and 17 year olds. We have a waiting room that's strewn with pride flags and trans pride flags and a kind of collage of different LGBT leaflets and photos of our participation group doing pride makeup. And we all wear rainbow lanyards. And, it, you know, it might seem like a small thing. It might just seem like decoration, but I think it's really important. I think as gay people, we are quite attuned to look for signs and signals and codes that the people, the person you're speaking to is a safe person, you know, and that might be a haircut or a style of dress or a, a casual comment that they make when you're in a social situation. And things are easier now than they were. Um, that makes you feel like this person is safe. I can be open with them and I can share with them who I am. I don't have to keep that hidden. And I think, you know, that works in social situations. That also works with services. And if you can have those little signals around, whether that is just a rainbow flag up on the wall that says this is a safe place to talk, um, I think people do pick up on that. And um, it's not unusual for me to speak to somebody who who talks about their sexuality or their gender identity for the first time and that always feels like a great privilege if that does happen such a such an enormous privilege when someone comes out to you or says actually no one else knows this but so it just shows that you've created an amazing space for them yeah absolutely speaking more about the relationship between mental health services and the lgbtq community there is a very difficult relationship between especially psychiatry and the LGBTQ community. So how do you think that mental health professionals can seek to repair this? I mean, I don't think we can undo what happened. I don't think you can say, okay, well, let's, you, you know, let's make that better. And then it's now neutralized. That happened and it needs to be remembered and it needs to be, um, you know, needs to still be being taught to the next generation of psychiatrists. We need to make sure that people know about that, because if we forget history, then, then you know, there is a risk that things can be repeated. And there's a temptation that people say, oh, well, that was years ago. It wasn't that long ago, you know, that, that, psych that, that homosexuality was, was being seen as a mental disorder. So I think, I think it's important to, to remember that, that and, and to keep that in mind and to learn from that. I mean, I think what we can do now is is try to build services that understand who LGBT people are, that that um, involve LGBT plus people in um, service design, and and try to create that comfortable space where people can talk, and try to make sure that we're meeting people's needs, and and that those services are, you know being assessed and, and checked that, that they are that they are doing that yeah um um as a team i mean we we, we recognize what was ida whole day i think it's ida it's like casters ida hobbit day is it with the it's added now when the um, homosexuality was taken off the classification for mental health disorders so we recognize that and it was sarah's right it relatively wasn't that long ago um, so I think it's just important that mental health professionals, we're, we're aware that, yes, the LGBTQ um, plus community are, are um, four times more likely, apparently, to, to struggle with mental health difficulties. But that is not because 
of their LGBTQ plus status it is potentially because of society's um, attitude towards mm. discrimination, like yeah. experiences of discrimination. So, so it's just important for us to to remember that kind of thing and and um, move forward regarding that. And moving on to our next question, so gay conversion therapy is still actually technically legal in the UK and it's been an incredibly slow process so it still actually hasn't been banned and why do you think this is? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to think about really, why that has taken so so long because it has been going on for so long and um, we're aware that other, you know, other countries in the world that, that maybe um, have um maybe aren't quite as forward um in changing different laws as maybe the uk is have have banned this so it's quite difficult to to understand why it is taking so long and i know that the the government is talking about um they still need to consult with um religious leaders other leaders in you know before this is banned although very much saying that it's abhorrent and and they want to ban it i mean i I can't speak for the government about what's taking them so long, but I think they need to get their act together. For me, this doesn't feel like a very complex issue. It, this isn't, it's called conversion therapy, but it's not therapy. It's, this is abuse. There's nothing therapeutic about it. It's quite shocking that someone actually left the board. There was a board moving this process forward. Someone left the board because it was taking such a long time. Mm-hmm to have this pass, which is just feels horrendous. So what active steps do you think the government could take to support the LGBTQ community? Of course, number one would be probably banning gay conversion therapy because this would send a message for sure. And Leslie, you mentioned something very interesting before, which is that people in the LGBTQ community are four times more likely to have mental health needs. Do you think there's anything that government could do to support them more? As you rightly said, obviously banning the you know the conversion therapy would be a huge message um, that would be you know sent out to society to do that to make that illegal. Um, but also as well, I I honestly believe that within school settings, um, um, as part of P- PHSE, part of sex education, to make that inclusive for young people regarding same-sex um, ed- um, same-sex relationships, that that those relationships are talked about. We haven't got we haven't got Section 28 anymore. Um, so just about the, it's it's every relationship um, is equally as valid. And for young people to be able to hear that, that they're not invisible and they're not ignored. Yeah, and and I I suppose I would add to that from from the mental health perspective is we need we need to keep keep increasing funding in in mental health services across the age range, but obviously you know our view is is particularly with children and young people. And as you said, there is this higher prevalence of mental mental disorders in LGBT plus people and the situation is at the moment that there's not enough of the service to meet the need in the community and what that unfortunately means is that the thresholds in children and young people's mental health services end up getting higher and then you lose an opportunity for that early intervention which can prevent problems from getting worse 
And I think the government actually is putting more money into children and young people's mental health services, but that needs to keep going. The momentum needs to keep keep going with that. And that will benefit not just the LGBTQ plus community, but, but all young people. Um, and the other thing that we see quite a lot is um, that gender identity services at the moment are not, not very accessible for young people we work with. We're able to make the referral, but the waiting lists are very long. Geographically, um, people have to tra travel a long distance. And this is young people who often don't have the resources to do that and may not have the support of parents to take them to those appointments. And so I think, and, and there has been a lot of talk about this, but I think making those services more accessible is needs to be a priority as well. Earlier when we were talking about lockdown, I just want to go back into that and ask you about any personal difficulties that you might have had during the pandemic. And how did you deal with these? These might have been emotional difficulties or they might have been practical difficulties, for example, not being able to be face to face with people anymore. Yeah. Um, shall I go first? Yeah, go on. I, so, yeah, practicalities. We, we had to think very, very quickly. Um, and our, our manager kind of um, very much kind of thought on their feet regarding like how are we going to do this and um, we work in quite a, a, a close space where we are so about half at home half in work and how we then provide a, a decent service for the young people that we work with that that can be as good as we could manage at that time so we very quickly had to kind of start using technology that we're not used to doing so we were doing video phone appointments etc but we've always continued to, to offer face-to-face -face appointments with some young people so how we could try and do that safely for them and for, for and also for us um with you know with, with all that stress that was going on so that was you know it was a huge challenge that that we kind of did um so yeah just about trying to keep you know keep safe ourselves look after each other as a team so we've only kind of seen half our team at any time really that's starting to change a little bit now so then just kind of looking after us for myself like looking after myself within that and and also just trying to keep in touch with friends really so that we don't because we have worked all the way through it's not it's been it's been very hard we you know we've never stopped and um, that's absolutely fine we would have expected to do that but you know not to become our whole identity become our work <laughs> when we actually have some social interaction with other people as well that aren't necessarily um who we're working with so yeah it's been it, it's it's been a challenge it's been hard work it's it's you know we, we're coming out the other side yeah it's interesting what you say about the video because that was very new for us um we we weren't Te very technological before were we and, and that moved very quickly so it shows what you can do when you have to and I was very optimistic really when we started using video about th that we'd be able to get a whole group of young people who struggle to make it to appointments might be able to engage and this would be really beneficial for people and actually what I learned through that was that the, the barriers for people being able to access mental health services which are 
I probably did already know, but I think I was feeling very optimistic <laughs> and more complicated than that. And, and, and the barriers are much more about people's complex lives. You know, so in order to attend a video appointment, you still have to remember the time of the appointment, have access to a device, make sure that it's charged, be awake, make sure that somebody's got you out of bed. Mm-hmm. Um, have some privacy. Have some privacy. Be, um, you know, we, we do see young people who may be living in quite chaotic situations, so they might be sofa surfing, moving between different people. And so, you know, sometimes you can get hold of them when they're living with one person, but not another person. And, and actually, technology didn't make any of that any easier. <laughs> um, so that's one thing I found. I mean, on a personal um, point of view, I've kind of had a pandemic of two halves because I was on maternity leave for the first part. Um, and that was certainly a more lonely, more difficult maternity leave than I had envisioned that it would be. I think the ways that I coped with that were making sure that I tried to stay as connected as I could with family members and with friends, you know, over all the technology that everyone's been using, WhatsApp and Zoom and everything. Um, making sure that I got out as much as we were allowed to. Um, I'm, I'm lucky to have some green space near me and I have a dog who demands to go out quite a lot. So that was definitely very good for me. Um, so so I think that was, that was um, helpful. And the other thing that actually really helped was coming back to work. It's such a busy and absorbing job and a real privilege to to get back to working with young people and hearing about people's lives and that's definitely made a huge difference. And how has it been coming back from a maternity leave that you had during lockdown? Do you feel like you had the good time like with your new baby and you're back at it or would you have liked to have just had the whole 15 months at home? Oh no it was good coming back because um you know, it was great being with my baby and she's been a great distraction from everything. But it was good to come back because what I what I had hoped maternity leave would be like would be being with my baby and spending time with other mums and getting to know people and, and socialising. And, and that wasn't the experience. And so actually being able to come back to work to see my lovely colleagues and to be occupied with with you know, with trying to help young people to feel better has has really helped get that balance back in my life rather than being in the house all the time. I'm not really a person who's a natural stay stay in the house all the time kind of person. And could you both tell me about someone in the LGBTQ community that inspires you? This might be a close friend or someone you've never actually met. Um, I there's, there's so many, and we we've kind of got them scattered all around the buildings on on doors etc but I suppose somebody that I was kind of thinking about it um is um the boxer Nicola Adams who's um you know I mean she she's just um very I think she's very inspirational because she's never hidden her sexual orientation but also it's not all of her that it doesn't a sexual orientation doesn't encompass her it's part of it's, it's one of our identities um, and I just, I just think she's a quite um, a sound representative, really. Yeah, and obviously Leslie um, has been inspiring me. <laughs> um, so the person I've chosen um, at the moment, my big inspiration is is RuPaul Charles, 
I um, have been on this on the search for kind of joyful, uplifting TV to get me through the long pandemic nights. And um, I'm very late to the RuPaul's Drag Race game, but since I've discovered it, I've watched many seasons over this latest lockdown. And um, and yeah, it's just it's joyful and it's fun and it's silly and um, it's had me laughing. And so that's really really helped with the pandemic but also I think the inspiration comes from because it's so fun and silly I can see people watching it with their families I can see families starting to open their minds a bit to um well to, to people of different sexualities but also to play with gender and to have fun with what is masculine what is feminine and I think that's hugely powerful and hugely disruptive to kind of the norms that, that are in our society but because it's done so lightly and with so much fun I think that's how that's how people will get engaged with it yeah. and and the other thing about it is we see a lot of young people who um who really struggle with their body image and and that has a huge impact on their self-esteem and I think when I was growing up, and this is still the case now, there was a template of how you should look to look beautiful. And you looked, you kind of, you could either try to make yourself look as close to that as possible, or you could turn your back on it and say, well, I'm not taking part in any of those things. But what, what RuPaul's Drag Race does is say, it's okay for anyone to look beautiful and fabulous and celebrate any body shape or you know aesthetic or or whatever your your taste is it's kind of like bring your own template show us what you think is beautiful and then take it as far as you can let's let's push it let's let's be as creative as possible and and really celebrate it and i think again i think that's incredibly powerful so that's my absolute inspiration at the moment i definitely think that's the first time that psychiatry and RuPaul will be potentially the same podcast. RuPaul, I love you. That's perfect. I like that you've you've gone you've gone for serious and you've gone for light relief at the same time. And yes, that's great. And I was just wondering, is there anything else that you would like to be asked so that we can go into it in a bit more detail? Do you think there's anything that you'd like to mention that like you think patients have been through or anything that you think staff have been through that you think is important to mention over this past year? I mean, I think I think this has been a very stressful year for staff. I think, you know, and I think people are aware of that. And that's not just us in the NHS. I think, you know, everybody who's working, we've been lucky in a way that, that our jobs are secure and that we know that we've got a job and so many other people in society have have faced that uncertainty or, or actually losing their job and the, the financial consequences of that. So, you know, it has been very stressful for staff, but then you've got to put it into that context. And but but I think I think we've seen that and I think we've we've tried our best to be supportive to each other. But then there's that natural distance of, of the team being split and half being at home, half being, um, you know, in at one time or another or, or team meetings that used to all be, you know, together in a physical space and now separated and done over technology. 
um, you know, the, the ability that we used to have to kind of just go to each other's desks and discuss things have, has been disrupted by working from home. So, so you've got to be creative about how you support staff. Yeah, absolutely. I echo all of that. Um, and credit, we, credit to Vicky, our team manager, who's been brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we we are all very mindful that we're, you know, we're we're very lucky. We're in we're in jobs. We haven't, you know, we're not faced with that financial situation or that worry that you know millions of other people have faced. So we are mindful of that. Thank you. I think that's a really good note to end it on. If you would like more information on the topics discussed today, please go to our website, which is www.rcpsych.ac.uk. Then select About the College, then select Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. A huge thank you to both Sarah and Leslie for lending their perspective to the podcast and helping us to celebrate Pride. Thank you for listening to the Royal College Psychiatrist podcast with me, Ella Marchant.